Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Well, guys... Let me tell you, I am always about a little stress relief, a little bit of extra Z's, you know, all of that good stuff. And whether you need that or you need a little bit of like recovery from whatever you've been getting into these days, mood boosters, or you're just feeling like, you know what, I want to have like a little bit of like a skin glow up. We have the answer for you. And that answer is Prima. I know you guys have heard us talk about Prima before, but like for anyone new that's listening, let us give you the skinny. So they are a brand that has amazing doctor formulated, clinically validated, high performance CBD products for the skin, body, and mind. And literally like all the forms, basically like all the forms, but they've got CBD supplements. They've got bath bombs, which we obviously, we love a good bath bomb, body lotion, skincare. I mean, they've got it all and they are really helping us fight against all of those stressors on our minds, our bodies, unities, the environment, the whole freaking nine yards. And this is super exciting. In case you weren't like already sold from our little spiels and all of that good stuff, Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on dot, 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 meticulously sourced ingredients with sustainable farming practices here for it. They are carbon neutral, meaning all carbon emissions from making the product are offset. And no, we're not talking about the wrapper. Let me just be very clear here. Although he's a legend. clean with strict safety standards. We like to play it safe with that good stuff. So let's hear it for that. And this is what we really love. For every product sold, Prima removes twice as much plastic waste from the environment. And, and get this, Prima also gives 1% annually to nonprofit organizations and is a certified B Corp. I mean, they literally do it all. Yes, those are all the reasons and more why we love Prima, why we're partnering with them. Couldn't be more of stands over here, as you probably know by now. But we also actually want to give them a shout out because they are also kind of doing some advocacy right now, which we love because they are pushing to declassify CBD as shaft content. So shaft content is any content pertaining to sex, hate, alcohol, firearms, tobacco. And so this means that companies are not allowed to use text messaging to promote their CBD products, despite CBD being a complete wellness aid like we just talked about, that sleep support, the stress relief, all the things. It's a wellness aid. It has no intoxicating effects. And CBD is effectively being classified in the same category as hate speech, violence, alcohol, guns, some some negative stuff, which is just unjust and it ain't it. 
So in an effort to stop censoring CBD, Prima and a coalition of CBD brands are on a mission to unlock the industry together and hashtag free CBD. So join us by signing and sharing the petition today. It is in the description for this episode. So go sign it, share with your friends. And then of course, you guys don't forget that you can also enjoy Prima for yourself because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better, sign the petition, look glowy every day. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. Well, Samantha, welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, and welcome back to your apartment. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's been a long journey for you. Journey, yeah, journey, like, honestly, almost sounds more positive than it should be described as, although I will give 10 points to God for the sunset that I saw from said bus tonight, but let me tell you, the trials, the tribulations, the wild, crazy-ass Airbnb host that I had to deal with today. The internet going out. I, there's some other things on that list, but let me tell you, the it odds was were stacked against you. Sounds they like. totally were, and I just the I'm traffic. not sure what bad karma I put out there to you know throw it back. But yeah, we're recording this. It's not too late for me, but it's it's reaching pretty late hours over there on the East Coast when we're recording this right now because Sam was stuck on a bus in Long Island traffic, correct? Oh, yeah. She's coming back from the Hamptons once again with her rosy sunburn. And she's got the raspy voice back a little bit. I hear you. That's true, and that will take. We're here for that part. Which is so funny because I like literally didn't notice until I was on a work call today, and they were like, whoa, are you good? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm better than ever with this voice. You're like, actually, this is how I'm supposed to sound. I so. know. But wait, what... What antics have you been up to as I was, you know, traffic logged? Jeez, that's a that's a good question. What have I been up to? Apartment searching? That's a nightmare. That's big. That's big stuff. Big stuff. I am talking to the conservative man I used to talk to once again. No. <laughs> no. I thought we blocked him. But I mean, blocked him. How is this supposed to go on your merch if we can't follow through on that? You're right. I'm such a hypocrite. How hot is he? Like, can we get a scale of one to ten so we can like? Let's let's introduce our guest. Okay. Okay. Let us do a little introduction. So we had the pleasure of speaking with Alexander Hunt, who is a candidate for Congress in the Third District of Pennsylvania. And this will be a little bit of a surprise, but this is another case of a more progressive Democrat running against an old school Democrat. We love it. So we've got a little bit of, you know, challenge within the party. We talk about politics of Philly, talk about so many different things as it pertains to her race and what that is going to look like as we get into 2022. And let us tell you guys, this is just the beginning of 2022 coverage, like just the tip of the iceberg. We have so much midterm Michigas coming to you guys live and lengthy for this coming year. So without further ado, here's Alexandra. 
All right, well, let's get things started. We are so excited to have you here and super excited to have gotten connected by our friend Sarah. She is really such a treasure trove of giving us all these great conversations with amazing women in politics. You are one of them and we are super excited to, of course, get to know you, get to know your campaign. So I think to start it all off, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and what you are running for. Sure, I'm very excited to be here. At Sarah talked you up to, to me before she introduced us, so I was already, I already heard of Girl in the Gov and was totally game for this. My name is Alexandra Hunt. I'm running for House of Representatives in PA3, which is most of Philadelphia. And I'm running against an, an incumbent who has been in office for 41 years. He was in the state house before he was in federal office. And he does not support Medicare for All, the Green New Deal. He defunded our public education system and helped deregulate banks. And so that kind of gives you a gist of what I'm up against. Gotcha. And 41 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he's an incumbent Democrat or Republican? Okay. Gotcha. Democrat. Well, fascinating. Also, on the TikTok front, I just also want to point out that I commented on one of your TikToks like a few few weeks, month ago. And then Sarah actually saw the comment and was like, wait, I know her. Let's like get her on the show. And then I was like, because I think like my comment was actually like, hey, come on the show. So it was just so funny, like small world moment. Love Kismet. that. Yes, love. But back to the campaign and you, can you kind of give us a, you know, overlook of what your district looks like and the demographics and how they usually vote, all that stuff? So I'm running in the most democratic district in the nation. And our demographics are 54% black, 57% women. It's a pretty evenly distributed age range. And then unfortunately, the second impoverished district in the state and the number one large impoverished city in America. Oh, wow. That is crazy in terms of two, the fact that this dude has been in office for 41 years makes kind of sense in terms of, you know, continuing to support the incumbent well, yeah, wait, why up. do you think that is like is was has he been really challenged before or are you kind of the first one to do it he he's been challenged once before it it was unsuccessful and it wasn't a very big campaign philly politics is kind of its own beast and what what the demographics shows you is is that there is systemic oppression and and it's happening and intersecting on Philadelphia and it comes it comes from both parties. So the the fact that this is the most democratic district in the nation means that we should have a flaming progressive yeah. in this seat, but we kind of have someone who is status quo and complacent and that complacency has really hurt the district and has, has led to Philly leading in poverty rates. And he, in the state house, he actually lost power because he was using state funds for other things and was investigated by the FBI. And then he was removed from his committee post. But the politics of Philly is, is it kind of looks at who's been around the longest and then it chose him for this seat where he ran against his predecessor who actually left office and went to jail and he was handed the seat and he now sits in it. So it it's just 
that's how Philly politics works. It's it's more about who you know than actually running hard for office. So we're we're really giving him a challenge and we'll see if he gets out and knocks doors and starts making phone calls because he hasn't had to do that before. Right. Wow. From one seat to prison to another seat, back to prison again, I feel like that is an interesting pipeline in and of itself. What makes Philadelphia politics so unique besides the the need to know people culture? Like, is there anything else that, like, if you're not from Philly and it's sort of like, okay, like, what are the politics like? Like, how would you describe it? We have a ward system, which I've been asking other candidates what their system is and, and if they know what a ward system is. And I haven't heard this duplicated in any other district yet, but it's it's a bit old fashioned. And the the ward system is supposed to be a contributor for for greater democracy. And what it is, is we have ward leaders, we have the district divided into wards, we have ward leaders and then committee people, and they are supposed to help get voters out to to their wards, to, to their polling places, and then help help with the voting process. But what actually happens is that this ward system has become part of the machine that holds holds the status quo in place and the the ward leaders are often bought out and they they will sit there and and tell you tell their voters when they if they walk in and they haven't heard of either person they'll tell them who to vote for and so it it really contributes to whomever's in their pockets is who they're going to say the name of wow that's crazy well, what is also some of the like biggest issues that impact your district and like what really are some of the ones that you're running on primarily? All of them. All of them play a pretty big role in Philly and they, they everyday life in Philadelphia, especially moving through this pandemic and where we are now is has gotten really really hard. So, if we want to talk the local level, we've been seeing rising gun violence and we've been seeing a lack of political courage of our leadership to step up and take action. And I think that we saw that replicated at the federal level in response to this pandemic, that there was there was a huge dangerous thing that came into our lives and our leadership rose. And instead of taking action and trying different things and how to respond and how to mitigate the lost the pandemic, they ended up just not doing much or doing things slowly and waiting for vaccine rollout and not combating the pandemic in any other way. So Philly, Philly is facing issues from a lack of Medicare for all. And we've seen that in hospital safety net hospital closures. We are facing environmental racism and that people do not have safe houses or greenhouses and are struggling through these exhaustive heat waves that keep coming through and don't have the means to stay cool and are suffering from heat stroke. We have extreme poverty here. We have food insecurity and we don't have the we don't have the means at the state level to put things through like living wage and uh, healthcare because it's a GOP run state, even even though we flipped it blue for the presidential election. So that's why we really need to have fighters in Congress who can pull those resources out of the federal government. Well, what also like 
led you to even run for office? Like, what is your, you know, background? What led you here? And what was the really the, the trigger for you to like be like, I'm doing this? It was the pandemic. My, my background's in public health. And when the pandemic struck, I was out at testing sites, at, at food distribution sites. I was getting, helping to distribute menstrual items to school-age children. And I was at a food distribution site and just the, the line was so long. And it wrapped around the building down the street and that people going without food, people sitting in po- poverty is all a policy choice. And it comes totally. from the inaction of our federal government. And so I was just like, you, you know, what am I waiting for? If, mm-hmm. if no one's going to step up and do this and fight for us, then I'm going to throw my hat into the ring and try. I love that. It's amazing. Well, shall we move into our I Have a Stupid Question segment? We have a few <laughs> questions for you. Um, and we're going to start it off with what is a union? A, a union is a group of workers from a common sector who join together to, to form collective bargaining power. I think that would I think that was like A plus, like on <laughs> literally on the money. And it is one of those terms we always like in this segment to talk about things that get said a ton, but then people don't really know what the meaning is. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And it's also usually kind of connected with this concept in, well, really in contrary, is the concept of right to work. Can you explain what that is? Well, right to work is kind of an undermine from union power and and feeds into the establishment. Right to work was supposed to protect workers. That's what they said. And it means that people can have membership into a union without paying dues. And ultimately it leads to a divestment from the union. And so where union power comes from is is from the investment of their membership base. And then they can use that that money and that power to, to bargain for whatever it is that they're looking for, better wages or benefits, whatever it is. So right to work kind of circumvents that and says that that workers can be part of a union without investing in it, and it takes away from the union power. Gotcha. Okay, and then for the next one, what is collective bargaining, and how does that play in? Collective bargaining is that collective bargaining. Bargaining is the purpose of unions, and it takes a group and uses their their power and and their money just as as a trying to think of a different word besides collective as a group that mm-hmm. the unified power of them to accomplish better wages or better out better working hours working conditions or benefits and and unifies them in what they're asking for so rather than each person having individual asks if the group is asking for these sets of demands and it makes it more powerful because it's a group of people right gotta love the power of numbers and begs the next question what is a strike a, a strike is a protest tool that is basically, if the demands are not being met, then they, they're going to withhold something, working usually, going to work that day or multiple days until their, their demands are met. Yeah. Amazing. It, honestly, that always, that the concept of a strike always connects to me for teacher strikes. Like it's a very common thing, which is 
really relevant to our next topic, which is education policy reform. And I know you are a big supporter of the New Deal for Education. And of course, we've heard of the Green New Deal and you know similar names, similar, similar branding here. But what is the New Deal for Education for those that don't know? The New Deal for Education is a big piece of legislation that that we are putting forward and Jamal Bowman recently put the Green New Deal, proposed the Green New Deal for education, which has some similarities to what, what we are also proposing. But, and, and I'm glad that you tied in labor to, to teachers and, and education. I'm the daughter of two teachers, so that's, that's an important connection to make. The, the New Deal for Education brings the, the funding of public education off local taxes and puts it at the federal level. So there's a lot more funding that's possible. And what what we have seen is that in a city that's relatively poor, like like Philadelphia, the defunding, the, the money comes out of our, our school system and goes into other things. And that's the that's one of the first things that they'll divest from. So this makes it not an option and it makes it possible for then schools to be equitable across across the country and for education to to be much more equal to, to every and all, serving all students. It would increase the, the baseline salary of a teacher. Uh, I think that we're proposing 60,000, but that's always something that could be rechecked. And if there needs to be more in certain areas, then it needs to be more. It would better fund, increase funding for social workers, for school nurses, for school lunches, for school counselors. It would improve the the quality of the buildings that they're in, that children are in. And that's where it kind of ties into the Green New Deal. It would make them green and sufficient, but also make them safe from, from any sort of, unfortunately, perpetrator that were to, it, before the pandemic, we had seen an uptick in school shootings. And so it would protect students and provide security in that measure, but not through uh, school resource officers or policing. And I think that those are some of the big components there. There, There's a piece of it that ties into a digital new deal, which is talks about, it, it's not very sexy to talk about, but it talks <laughs> about the need for a tech overhaul a, and to really put money into funding universal broadband, cybersecurity, and then also making sure that everyone has has the the tech tools that we use every day. So, and it also ends the school to prison pipeline, builds the school to opportunity pipeline, and builds up trade schools and tech schools instead of just college. Amazing. Well, that you just kind of prompted one of our next questions, which is asking, like, really, what is the school to prison pipeline for those who don't know? The school to prison pipeline involves an environment or or culture in our school system that punishes children for for not meeting certain standards whether they are academic or behavioral and it by by having uh school resource officers who are basically in school police and instead of providing mental health support or counseling support that students could get a detention or or start to start to experience 
what what life would be like if they didn't attend school. And then sometimes there's some school punishments that even put them into juvenile detention. And and it so it leads directly into that prison pipeline. Right. And so ending the school to prison pipeline is really stepping away from punishing children and instead fostering an environment that just inspires their curiosity and allows them to be children. Totally. I mean, yeah, and that, you know, idea of, you know, the punishment of like suspension and expulsion. It's like, why are we pushing kids out of school? And then especially in certain communities, like into the streets where then, yeah, they they can get into trouble with the police or with law enforcement. So that's definitely an avenue of that pipeline for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then sort of like on another note, I know you mentioned this before, but having a minimum wage for teachers, 60K being sort of that starting wage. And I feel like this is super important for recruitment, for retaining amazing talent. But can you explain a little bit how this needs to happen? Why you think this needs to happen? Your parents are teachers too. So I'm sure, you know, that sort of plays into it as well. Yeah. I was actually talking to, to someone today who's a teacher. And I know that that President Biden said when he was running for for his current seat that he was fighting for the soul of this nation, but I I think the soul of of our nation rests in teachers and they are passing on our legacy to the next generation, whether it's math, English, history, science, they're they're they have those resources and they're passing it on. And so they need to be compensated for such noble work. Mm-hmm. I, and they are not. They're, they're actually kind of treated as an afterthought. And mm-hmm. so we have people like, like my parents who are giving their lives to educate the, the up and coming generation. And, and then they are not able to afford whatever, whatever it may be. I know the, the salary that my teacher or my parents saw, I, I know that for another person who's working on our campaign, his who were teachers in Texas, their starting wage was, I think, 35,000. And that's not a livable wage. Actually you, crazy. That's insane. Yeah. Not to mention, I feel like, so one of my old roommates was a teacher for a little bit and no longer is did a career pivot, but it was not only insane in terms of the amount of stress that she was on in on all day and going through and managing, but then it was the hours of work that she was also doing when she came home to prepare lesson plans, to grade papers, to all of these other things that you're not being paid overtime for. Overtime, yeah. And then she right. was buying her own supplies for her classroom and it was like constant out of pocket for her without investment back towards her from the school system. And I thought that was just so insane to me. If we're going to build a future that's bright and has citizens that are educated and ready to, you know, go, why are we not investing in the people that are teaching them? Yeah. Right. It seems very weird to me. And I also like, I mean, obviously the best thing about teachers is that they really do it because they're so passionate about the idea of you know teaching the next generation but it has there even been people kind of turning away from the occupation these days just because of the lack of investment towards them it's like I don't get paid enough I have to pay for my supplies nobody is taking care of me the way I need to and the way I'm taking care of these kids like has there been a movement away from you know people pursuing being a teacher 
Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it also ties in with, I'm not sure, are you Gen Z or millennials? I am like, I'm kind of both. I'm like the year on the cusp, but she's a millennial. <laughs> okay. I'm a millennial. Okay. And millennials and Gen Z are, are facing a lot of school debt. And so you, you go to school and in order to, to work in our school system, you have to have a license. You have, you have to be licensed. So you have to have that college degree. And then you can't, you can't afford to, to pay your loans because of the job that you're working, why would you go into that career path? Right, yeah. The same thing for, for early education is, is you, you have to, there's just been a divestment from it and a, we, we aren't retaining early childhood educators because of that. And it's a, it's a really big problem, especially as, as parents are looking for childcare. And so can you kind of shed some light too on like teacher unions and you know what that all looks like and like, are teachers allowed to unionize? Like, is this dependent? How does that work? Yeah, we, we have a teachers union in Philly, PFT, and there's a, there's a national one, and they, they, I believe they're allowed to unionize. We have them. I think that they're extremely important, but I, I also think that we, we should also be, be fighting for them. The school that I attended was, when I was younger, was threatened to be closed. And the people who were not being hired and who were just being laid off and let go were our teachers. And these were these were people who had who had raised myself and my peers. And I think that we kind of have a responsibility to pay it back to our teachers who invested so much time into us, so much energy and some of their money and supplies and all of that, and and to show up and fight for them. So Yes, we, we have teachers unions who are fighting for themselves, but I think that we need to be part of that too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think it's kind of just round this out. It's really interesting to me how there's a lack of push on like a policy end to make this change. Is there any reason that you've either seen or heard as to like why politicians are not like, hey, let's pay our teachers more or yeah, let's invest in education? Yeah, it's such a bipartisan issue, you think, right? I have had so many people comment at me that when I start talking about education, they, they're like, nobody cares that talking about that isn't going to win you your election. And so I, I don't really understand it, but I think that it has to do with we're not thinking of our future generations, and it, and it shows at, at the policy level. We're not paying attention to what's going to happen to our children, and, and as millennials or, or Gen Z, Zillennial, whatever they call you, <laughs> we have we we know what that neglect feels like to have the government not be thinking of us as they pass these policies, like like what happened with with student debt, and and so we we grew up with that, and and we're seeing that cycle replicate itself for potentially our future generations, but mm-hmm. we know what that feels like, and so we are speaking up, and I think that older generations didn't realize how much they were taking from the younger generations with this neglect. Totally. I mean, it's such a, that's such a good point. Just the lack of care for future generations in our policymakers. I mean, you see it even with climate change too. It's the same type of issue, but I mean, speaking of student debt, like you support eliminating student debt, can you kind of walk us through the benefits of doing that, what that would look like and like kind of really what door kind of doors these would open for people? 
Yeah, I, I also like to start this conversation with it's not student debt forgiveness, it's student debt cancellation. And there's an important distinction. And I think, I, I think more conservative people with more conservative views, whether they're Republican or Democrat, use forgiveness. But we haven't done anything wrong by trying to educate ourselves. In fact, this is something, this is how we're trying to serve our country. That's such a good it, point. So we are, this, this is supposed to be their investment in us as we, and then we enter the workforce to serve them for the rest of our lives or right. until we reach the age of retirement and can receive social security. So I am very much for student debt cancellation and it could be accomplished with the flick of a wrist with Joe Biden's signature and it could be wiped out because there's there's no necessity from it. The the repayment of, of student debt is not funding anything. It's not funding anything and it's simply designed to it it's kind of a archaic policy that that's that's like parenting us when we when we don't need to be parented and it's it's really just oppressing people from climbing climbing the ladder and achieving that american dream that we all grew up with so mm -hmm. it there's no reason not to cancel it besides but besides again conservative older generations talking about how well we paid off ours why can't they pay off theirs mm -hmm. and the good that would come from it is it would be an economic boost right. we we from from there millennials and gen z as they as they complete their schooling could could start to invest in things whether it's houses or small businesses or you know whatever else that people want to invest in it's going to be put into our economy there, right. There's going to be more purchasing, so it, there, I, I don't understand the arguments against it. Especially right now, when after a pandemic and people are, you know, struggling, that would be just a huge weight lifted off so many people's shoulders, and could potentially probably save an economic collapse in ways, or at least help the situation. But before we wrap up, can you kind of give us the logistics of the campaign? Like, when are people voting? When's your primary? When's the election? Give us all the details. The election is is a primary, and it is May 17th, 2022. So if you are a young person who turns 18 before that, then register to vote. And, and if you're in PA3, you can vote for me. <laughs> And up, in, up until then, we are building up our campaign. We're trying to get word out as much as possible. We're up against big name recognition. And actually, my opponent just had a, an $850,000 gift from a, our Philadelphia Community College who ran a TV ad on him, which is very nice. I'm not going to be getting gifts like that, unfortunately. <laughs> So we are going to be knocking doors and calling people and just talking to people up until May 17th and running as hard as we can. Amazing. And then where, where can people find you? Social media, websites? You can, our website is huntforcongress.com and you can sign up to volunteer. You can also make a campaign contribution. We have Facebook, which is Alexandra Hunt for Congress, Twitter, which is a hunt, the number for Congress, Instagram, which is Alexandra Hunt for Congress, and TikTok, which is Alexandra Hunt for Congress. And we welcome your 
subscriptions and, and likes and all of that, it, it helps us tremendously get word out. Yes, keep up those TikToks and anyone listening, please go to her TikTok <laughs> ASAP. They're incredible. We stand. But thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate you and we wish you nothing but luck in your campaign. We'll be keeping an eye on it for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, let's get into the top stories of the week. And let's go into our infrastructure segment. Because <laughs> at this point, it's its own segment. So big updates on the infrastructure bill, you guys, because the Senate voted 66 to 28 on Friday to advance the bill. But it's still unclear, classic, if enough Republicans will eventually join Democrats to support its final passage. So huge vote on Friday was super exciting that the Senate actually, you know, advanced this bill. So that's a great next step but it has not finally passed. So for the final passage, the Senate requires 60 votes in the evenly split 50-50 chamber to advance the bill, so a simple majority to pass it. The $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure package in the Senate includes more than $150 billion to boost clean energy and promote climate resilience by making schools, ports, and other structures better able to withstand extreme weather events like storms and wildfires. But the bill falls very much short of President Joe Biden and honestly Aaron Burgess's ideal world and the pledge to transform the nation's heavily fossil fuel power economy into a clean burning one and stop climate damaging emissions from U.S. power plants by 2035. So the bill as it is now is is not hitting those goals. And notably, the deal admits mention of clean electricity standard, a key element of Biden's climate plan that would require the electric grid to replace fossil fuels with renewable sources such as solar, wind, and hydropower. Nor does it include a civilian climate corps, a Biden favorite, and a nod to Great Depression era New Deal that would put millions of Americans to work on conservation projects, renewable energy, and helping communities recover from climate disasters. So, The White House says the bipartisan deal is just the first step with a proposed $3.5 trillion Democrat-only package following close behind. The larger bill still being developed in Congress will meet Biden's promise to move the country toward carbon-free electricity, make America a global leader in electric vehicles, and create millions of jobs in solar, wind, and other clean energy industries. And so while the bipartisan plan is a good start, lawmakers will deal with the climate crisis in magnitude, scope, and scale that's required. And that's a quote from Senator Ed Markey. And for now, the focus is on the bipartisan deal, which includes $550 billion in new spending for public works projects, $70 billion of that to update the electric grid, and more than $50 billion to bolster infrastructure against cyber attacks and climate change. And there's also $7.5 billion for electric charging stations. So, you guys, <laughs> here we are again. Updates, though, and I'm sure they'll continue to come. So, like always... We will keep you updated. Like the gift that keeps on giving, but also taking things away. But like not never giving. It's never really giving. Yeah. It's just cutting. And speaking of things that got cut, but then we added in a positive way. 
the eviction moratorium. So this has been in the news, especially today. So this may ring a bell, but the Biden administration allowed the federal moratorium, which is a federal ban on evictions, aka no one can be evicted from their home, move, whether you, you know, you rent an apartment, you rent a house, you can't be evicted to expire over the weekend and Congress was unable to extend it. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the House Democratic leaders basically on Sunday called on the whole Biden team, the whole crew, aka the administration, to immediately extend this moratorium, calling it a moral imperative to prevent Americans from being put out of their homes during COVID-19 surge. And let me tell you, like Cori Bush, this is you. This is freaking you. Cori Bush. Yes, Cori Bush. Our, of course, love AOC. We're doing a what do you call it? A sleep out? Major snaps, claps, hurrahs, balloons, biodegradable balloons. Let me just uh, make sure we're clear on that. For Cory Bush for starting this protest. And of course, some of the more progressive Democrats also joined in, but in DC protesting this moratorium. She has previously been homeless herself. And of course, this issue is deeply close to her, but honestly, it's a human issue. And I really hope that anyone listening would be as empathetic as as her on something she experienced herself. But regardless of that little moral tangent, she is really kind of the reason that some of the uh, old school Democrats, in my opinion, actually took this up. So as a result, the Centers for Disease Control, good old CDC, issued a new moratorium on evictions that will last until October 3rd. So this does not cover everyone. This is a 90% situation. But this is in an effort to quell some of the intensifying criticism, obviously brought by the Cory Bush, some more progressive ends of the party, to for them to be essentially allowing vulnerable renters to be losing their homes during a pandemic. Well, this new moratorium could help keep millions in their homes as obviously unfortunate Delta variant has spread and states have been slow to release the federal rental aid, which, okay, <laughs> It would temporarily halt evictions of counties with substantial and high levels of virus transmissions and would cover areas where 90% of the U.S. population lives. So moved, followed, like we saw these protests from some of the more progressive Democratic lawmakers over the swift end to the moratorium as the Delta variant of the coronavirus surges. Let's talk about your sweet little governor and sweet little New York, <sighs> Andrew Cuomo. You know. he's He has been under fire, but... It's getting real hot now because New York Governor Andrew Cuomo faced mounting pressure Tuesday to resign, including from President Joe Biden and other Democratic allies after an investigation found he sexually harassed nearly a dozen women and worked to retaliate against one of his accusers. Biden said, I think he should resign, um, echoing Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Kristen Gillibrand, and a lot of other Democrats. So the leader of the state assembly, who has the power to bring impeachment charges, said it was clear Cuomo could no longer remain in office. Speaker Carl Heasty, a Democrat, said he would move to complete an impeachment inquiry as quickly as possible. Yes, if you want to come on our show, let us know. Thanks. Yep, let us know. Love to have you. Love, we would love for that hot tea, please. Anyways, Cuomo remained defiant, though, amidst all of this. Classic. 
saying in a taped response to the findings that the facts are much different than what has been portrayed and that he never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. In a telephone conversation with Heasty, Cuomo insisted he wouldn't leave office and told the speaker he needed to work fellow Democrats and garner enough votes to stop an impeachment, according to a person familiar with the conversation. This is some tea. But Heasty said he couldn't do that, said the person who cannot publicly discuss these details of this private conversation, and spoke to the Associated Press, being anonymous. This is basically like the political version of Dumois. 100%. So this non-criminal investigation has been going on for nearly five months and has been overseen by New York's Attorney General and led by two outside lawyers. And it concluded that 11 women from within and outside state government were telling the truth when they said Cuomo had touched them inappropriately, commented on their appearance, or made suggestive comments about their sex lives. I really thought, like, he was going to just keep sailing clean. Like, obviously, I know the allegations. Well, he, he still thinks that's going to oh, happen for, sure. for him. That's for that sure. white. That's that white male privilege where they're just like, this isn't actually happening to me. Why don't you, why don't you, Heasty, just go figure it out for me. Go get the Democrats to not impeach me. And he's like, no, that's not how this works, sir. Moving on to another problematic man in power. And with really, really over-gelled hair. So <laughs> several Democrats, whoa, several House Democrats have called on House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy. Hey, this one's from your state, by the way. Just putting that out there. That's true. Well, both of them. Yeah, you know, I mean, we just got problems for days. So has been essentially called upon to apologize to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or resign after audio surfaced of him saying at a weekend fundraiser that it would be, quote unquote, hard not to hit her with a gavel if he's sworn in as a speaker after the 2022 midterm elections. But the comment is really symbolic of the rising tension between the two leaders, you know, just having their little California fight since the January 6th insurrection, which obviously we know what happened there, but good old Donald Trump's supporters broke into the Capitol and uh, hunted for Pelosi by name. After initially condemning the rioters and blaming Trump for inciting them, McCarthy and his leadership team have recently tried to lay blame on Pelosi, falsely claiming that she was responsible for a delay in military assistance, which is just like, it's just not it. It's just not true. And McCarthy has remained close to Trump, aka <laughs> likes to canoodle, <laughs> who often insulted his political rivals in personal terms. Democrats responded quickly to this, knowing that the threats on Pelosi's life on January 6th were literally no joke. So threatening violence against the Speaker of the House is no joke. Literally, that's like that's what I wanted to say. And that's what New York Representative Maloney also said. So just put that in perspective, me and Maloney are basically buds. But he also said this. This is the kind of reckless language that led to a violent insurrection. And he is, in my opinion, totally right about that because words have power. I mean, Jesus Christ. McCarthy last week blamed Pelosi for a renewed mask mandate in the House. It's a decision conjured up by liberal government officials who want to continue to live in a perpetual pandemic state, which, like, check that quote out. Who act... The fact that they actually think that is 
so bizarre that they actually think, oh yeah, Democrats, they just want to live in this pandemic state. It's like, are you fucking crazy? No, it's like, we're trying to literally leave the pandemic state, hence the mask. I can't. And like, so she shot, she shot back and she was like, you're a moron. Which like, I would literally be like, yeah, you're a fucking moron. So like, I would just like add a little Jersey twang in there and add like a curse word for kicks. But like, I mean, shocking. Like, that's the kind of rhetoric that's being pushed out to their base is... Democrats just want you to live in lockdown in a pandemic state. That's what they want. It's like, who would ever want that? Who no one wants, wants nobody that. Nobody wants that. Are you literally how dumb to can you sender? Be? I, just, I can't with that. This is where I draw the line. This is where I get a little hostile. This is where I get a little mean. All right. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's that's our top stories for uh, this week. Indeed, that is it. That is it for this week. Definitely want to give all the plugs to our brand ambassador program and also like say hi to all the brand ambassadors like i miss them i know i haven't talked to them in what a week <laughs> i have separation anxiety i do i do too i miss you guys but yeah go sign up for our brand ambassador program we'll put the link to just the kind of overview of what it is and what you can expect and also the sign up form yeah you can even just sign up we'll hop on a call and if you're down we'll slide you right in so Go sign up and subscribe, rate, review, follow us on Instagram, follow us on TikTok. But have a great Wednesday, rest of your week. Sam, I hope your sunburn recovers, but your voice does not. Oh, that's like the (laughs) nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Oh. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. We'll talk to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.